Hello to my little friend. Again, everyone, it's Glenn People speaking, welcoming you to episode number eight of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast. Well, this time something a little bit different again. I'm going to be talking about the idea of equality. I do have one major disclaimer throughout this presentation I have a cold, so please bear with me. Uh, the presentation is going to be called Equality and Secularism. Uh, it picks up on some themes that I introduced a while ago now in episode 2 and 3. Gosh, we must have been going for a while now when I can talk about things that have happened a while ago. Seems like only yesterday. And I'm going to be developing those in a new area. I'm going to suggest that secular, modern secular democratic political liberalism, um, a view that I'm sympathetic to in some ways but not in others, actually has some internal problems and it may be self-contradictory. So we're going to be talking about politics, about the role that God might play in that, and in particular the role that uh, theological beliefs might play in believing in the doctrine of equality, and whether you can really have a good doctrine of equality from a purely secular point of view. So if that sounds interesting, keep listening, because we're going to go there right now. In episodes 2 and 3, I said something about political philosophy and a position that I've called prohibitionism, the view that we should not support policies on the basis of our religious convictions. We need to have a purely secular justification for such things, according to political liberalism, and religious beliefs lack justification, so they cannot possibly be used to justify any policy. I rejected that view. But today I'm going to raise a related question. I'm going to ask whether or not the type of political liberalism that does try to purge religious convictions from public life might actually be self-defeating. I will select the issue of equality because it's an issue, it's an ideal rather, that forms an important part of such liberalism. In liberalism, by which I mean modern political liberalism, the proponent of any policy has a moral duty to justify that policy to his fellow citizens. In liberalism, people are to be accorded a certain degree of dignity and respect. We should not advocate policies that would have coercive effects on them without doing them the good decency of, as Robert Audi put it, having and being willing to offer a secular justification for the policy in question. Human beings just are such that Quote, other people should be treated reasonably, and the application of power should be accompanied by conscientious and open efforts to meet objections with reasons. That's uh, from the words of political philosopher Stephen Macedo. So, in other words, all people should be regarded as equal, and hence all people have the same obligation to provide public justification for their coercive policy, since everyone deserves an explanation for why they should be made to endure any given policy. This view may be contrasted, for example, with 
uh, the view that some people, because of their status, maybe their race, maybe their, their wealth or their employment, are owed no explanation by upper-class citizens for why upper-class preferences should be enshrined in law. Okay, so this doctrine of equality rejects that view of people. So here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask what a liberal democratic doctrine of equality really is and is not, and then I'm going to ask if there is any plausible way of accounting for that doctrine in purely secular terms. And it is my contention that there, in fact, is no way of doing so. So that's what you're in for. Let's first get clear about what this doctrine of equality is in the first place. It's important to define our terms. There are, in fact, at least two concepts of equality, and two main ones that I'm going to talk about here. One, just to get it out of the way, because it's not the one that we're discussing in any length, and then I'll describe the one that I am going to be discussing. The first uh, understanding of, of equality can be called teleological equality, that is, equality go uh, geared towards a certain goal or end. It's crucial to note with a political scientist who I'm rather fond of, Jeremy Waldron, his writings, that is, I'm fond of, the role that equality plays in much of contemporary liberalism, or at any rate, a role that it does have, which for my interest here is the most important role. Equality in this presentation should not be seen primarily as an aim or a goal, even if it is an aim or a goal as well. There is a recognizable distinction between these two concepts of equality. I'm not talking about equality like a goal, like, for example, equality of income, equality of employment opportunities, equality of health service provision, and so forth. A philosopher named Ronald Dworkin clearly has this concept of equality in mind when he says that, quote, equality is a popular but mysterious political ideal, end quote, and that people can become equal as the result of certain political systems and actions. So in the, in the work of John Rawls, for example, this kind of equality, although it's not the only kind, serves as an important goal in overcoming what he calls natural inequality. It is the end of a, what he calls a conception of justice that nullifies the accidents of natural endowment. So we're basically not equal and we should seek to bring equality about. Norman Daniels, another example, sums up what this view of equality is concerned with by telling us basically what he thinks egalitarian concerns are. He says, many of us have egalitarian concerns. To some extent, that is, at some cost, we would prefer a world in which goods, powers, liberties, opportunities, wealth, health, are more equally distributed to one in which they are not. So what he's talking about here is, we are egalitarians, we value equality, by which we mean we want certain goods to be equally distributed. Uh, likewise, political scientist Alex Kalinik, Kalinikos, I think that's correct, in writing very broadly on the issue of equality, takes it as a given that we're not equal. We live in a world of inequality. And so a key question uh, like inequality, sorry, equality of what is a question that occurs to him, as though when considering the various things that might make people equal, um, things like income, quality of life, 
welfare and so forth those are the relevant factors not well we're equal by virtue of the fact that we're all human and so because of human equality we are equal um, I'm skipping over some examples because you know, there are a few examples out there that present this view of equality I'll just use one more political scientist Stephen Guest in what is actually an analysis of the legal philosophy of Ronald Dworkin makes his own general comments about equality and what it entails he says if people are to be treated as equals what should they be made equal in happiness wealth pleasure success in a chosen field beauty health luck what they want plots of land um, I'll cut the quote short there because you get the idea the suggestion is that if people are to be treated as equals then this involves the government giving them something or doing something to make them equal so it's actually quite a vulnerable conception of equality because if the government gets it wrong then people aren't equal so equality is lost now in fairness the person who advocates equality of this kind might not think that it's the only kind of, of equality and I think they shouldn't think of it that way there actually is a more fundamental doctrine of equality and that's the one that I'm talking about today so I'll do that now and I've cho chosen to call it basic equality so in the sense observed thus far a major purpose of justice is to bring equality about a more fundamental conception of equality namely the conception of justice that underlies the liberal view of human dignity is really I, I think a deontological notion of equality or perhaps better stated as a metaphysical conception of equality which in turn then gives rise to the teleological view so we should treat people equally bring equality about why because people are equal so that's basic equality that there exists such a distinction apart from being fairly self-evident I think is recognized in the literature for example distinguishing prescriptive or teleological equality from basic or descriptive equality uh, political scientist Mark Lutz claims that quote prescriptive equality is more powerful and more persuasive to the extent that it is built on a presumption of descriptive human equality in other words we are going to be a lot more persuasive trying to get people to treat each other uh, in such a way to bring about equality if we do it on the basis of the belief that we are in fact one another's equals uh, likewise uh, when reviewing the work on Coons and uh, Coons and Brennan on human equality uh, another political scientist Stephen Garvey was uh, rightly I think careful to point out at the outset which type of equality his work or sorry Coons and Brennan's work deals with he says when they say equality they don't mean equality in the normative sense i.e. how we should all be considered equal that of course is the bread and butter of most contemporary political philosophy instead they mean equality in the descriptive sense i.e. how we are already equal figuring out the correct contours of prescriptive equality is an important project but the project of by nature equal locating the foundation of descriptive equality what a mouthful is much deeper and more profound and one on which modern philosophers have as Coons and Brennan say been strangely silent the distinction then is an important one so 
basic or descriptive equality is what I have in mind. And while it may be true that modern philosophers in general have been strangely silent on the doctrine of basic equality and how it might be defended, many of them nonetheless seem to be heavily reliant upon it. Elizabeth Anderson sums it up as the most fundamental test any egalitarian theory must meet, namely that its principles express equal respect and concern for all citizens. The proper democratic conception of the demand of justice is, quote, the demand to act only on principles that express respect for everyone, end quote. That's still from Elizabeth Anderson. If any social arrangement or political theory is to be regarded as just, we are told, it must operate with a concept of presumptive equality rather than simply the goal of making people equal. That's from S.I. Ben and R.S. Peters, uh, their, their work, Social Principles and the Democratic State. So we ought to presume that we are one another's equals, but why should we do that? Why treat people as equals, or for that matter strive to make them equal? Why? Are they actually worthy of respect, of equal respect? The relationship between equality as a policy aim and equality as a foundational fact is simple, as Bernard Williams explained when speaking about policies geared towards teleological equality. He says, Those political proposals have their force because they are regarded as affirming an equality which is believed in some sense to already exist. Now this is not a notion held only by a few idealists that I am exaggerating. It is regarded as a truism throughout the philosophical literature in favor of political liberalism, with almost no exceptions. In the interest of not wanting to be monotonous, and also in the interest of time, I'm not going to cite example after example after example, but it is everywhere in the literature. Uh, Bruce Ackerman defends it. Robert Audi defends it. Richard Bellamy and Martin Hollis defend it. John Rawls, from time to time, appeared to defend it. So it is a very, very important for political uh, principle for political liberalism. So why should we defend it? What does this equal worth consist in? Well, as, as Jeremy Waldron uh, states the matter, the more fundamental philosophical question about equality is not the teleological one, what are its implications, but rather the foundational question, what does this foundational equality amount to and what is it based on? How do, how do we answer these questions? They're not trifling matters, they're really important. Given that liberal theories of government all seem to presuppose that governments and citizens must treat all citizens as basically equal, and that, quote, no one in the modern world could possibly get away with denying this, Waldron makes his accusation, and I think it is a good one. There is a failure of argument on a very broad front indeed. Among those who make use of some very basic concept of human equality, virtually no one has devoted much energy to explaining what the principle amounts to in itself, nor to the task of outlining what the refutation of any serious philosophical denial of basic equality would have to entail. Now how is this possible in the modern world? How is it possible that such a fundamentally important concept is not being defended or even explained by those who seem to employ it the most? Now to question such a lofty ideal as human equality might seem shocking or immoral, but still, if we want to do philosophy, sometimes we have to entertain far-out ideas.
We need to ask why we think that gravity will continue to make things fall down and not up. How we know that there really is an external world, or that there really are other minds and so forth, and why we should think that people are equal. Now, if a politician ever raised this question, he wouldn't get voted into office. But while it might be good politics not to rock the boat when it supports a theory so important to one's own vision of justice, it is very poor philosophy. One of the first things to say here is that the basis of human equality is so elusive to the secular liberal that what equality really amounts to is, in a word, unclear. Sidney Hook, a political philosopher, went as far as to say that, quote, the enormous literature and bitter controversy which center around the concept of equality indicate that it is only a little less ambiguous than the concept of democracy itself. In Hooke's own view, equality is not a description of fact, but an imperative. And so the best that we can do is to just utter our will about how to treat people. I'll say more about this when I discuss anti-realist approaches to equality below. But if there is a basic fact of equality, appeals to it are far more common in modern liberal writings than anything like an actual defense of it. Now, some modern liberals might want to get off the hook and say, well, we don't really need to defend the basic fact of equality. And there are a couple of ways that they might go about this. So before continuing, I want to deal with some of the ways that might be used to get out of the position of being asked to defend one's doctrine of equality before I go on to explain the historical way that the doctrine of equality has been defended. One way is what I've called the escape by anti-realism. The first way uh, to deny that there is a problem here to be explained is to deny that the claim of equality is really a proposition that is supposed to be true at all, even when it is uttered by egalitarians themselves. Uh, Margaret MacDonald leads the way here she says, To assert that freedom is better than slavery, or all men are of equal worth, is not to state a fact, but to choose a side. It announces, This is where I stand. In other words, the claim is an anti-realist one. We aren't really stating facts about persons or their status, or about the world at all. We are just expressing where we stand, and effectively saying, This is what I am going to do. I think she's wrong overall, but she's on to something importantly true. The judgment that human beings have fundamental equality, for the secular liberal anyway, is not an obvious scientific truth or something we should expect that our fellow citizen will grant, provided they are being rational based on, based on the observable facts. It's not that kind of thing, or at least we can't assert that it is that kind of thing without taking for granted a controversial philosophical doctrine of some sort. It entails what many of us take to be a value judgment, and a controversial one at that. And so to say that we believe in equality expresses something about us, she says, but it says nothing about equality. A Canadian philosopher, although resident in New Zealand for some time at my alma mater, the University of Otago, and someone with whom I've discussed this at some length, James Flynn, takes a similar route away from the need to base democratic values on anything like 
uh, the fact of equality or anything true or at least anything knowable as true. Uh, Flynn notes that for most of our history as philosophizing people we have employed these things he calls truth tests for basic moral claims just as we employ them for scientific and other kinds of claims such as the claim that the earth is a sphere and not flat. Such truth tests it has been assumed he says show that certain moral ideals are not just whims or things that we like but they are actually true. He says and I quote they confer objective status on the ideals that they endorse and our hope of course is that they will favor our ideals and not those of some opponent. And so the truths arrived at can show us that our ideals have, have been false and we need to change our mind. What Flynn proposes by contrast is that there really are no proper ethical truth tests at all. He calls this position ethical skepticism. He doesn't say that all moral claims are false. He's not a nihilist. Um, he just says that there's no truth test that we can apply to moral claims, and so we can never say, well, I'm justified in stating that this moral belief is true. Uh, so it's not the case that A is in fact morally right. We can't know that anyway. Rather, And that doesn't mean, by the way, that it's morally wrong. He's just saying, well, it's not right or wrong as far as we are justified in declaring, because there's no way of testing the truth of moral claims at all. So we can still embrace moral duties, because those moral duties are not derived from moral truth. They're just things that we cherish. So we can jump on, the, the, say, the bandwagon of promoting humane ideals like equality, and the best we can do is do something like give three cheers for equality and hope that people are willing to rally to our cause because they cherish equality as well. He says, and I quote, If there is no such thing as ethical truth, it may be foolish to say that humane ideals ought to be accepted by those who loathe them. But it would be equally absurd to say that they ought to be dismissed by those who cherish them. Once again, for emphasis, in the absence of a truth test, no moral ideal, humane or otherwise, can pass or fail. A self-imposed duty to be humane may seem worthless to the anti-humane, but for us it is worth precisely what it is worth to us, obviously. That may be a great deal. It may demand that we lay down our lives to avoid anti-humane consequences. Now I grant that what a duty to uphold humane ideals is worth to us may be a great deal, but depending on who us happens to be, it also may be nothing at all. To the person who absolutely rejects equality, it doesn't matter that we cherish it. They don't cherish it, and you can't say that it's true or false, so why should they cherish it? I'm not criticizing Flynn at this point, as he freely grants that this is the case. He says, once the notion that ethical skepticism logically entails nihilism has been rejected, there is no problem about telling the fragment of humanity who are committed to humane ideals that they ought to live, sorry, ought to behave humanely. However, those who on the strength of their own commitment to humane ideals say that all people ought to behave humanely are targeting a wider audience, namely one inclusive of people like Nietzsche who loathe human ideals. And therein lies precisely the problem with non-truth-based 
or anti-realist approaches to values like equality. How would we defend these humane ideals like equality to those who reject them, and hence disagree with us at a fundamental level about what is right? What do you say to a committed bigot, an opponent of egalitarianism like, say, Friedrich Nietzsche? Well, nothing. There is nothing that can be said to someone who doesn't cherish the same ideals that you cherish. Now, critical to any stance on ideals about treating people equally, says Flynn, and quite rightly, is the question of exactly who counts, or even what counts, as the kind of person or thing to which our ideals apply. If we are going to be humane and benevolent, does that mean that we must stop eating meat because we're being ben benevolent to animals? Some think so. After all, as Peter Singer reminds us, once God is removed from the picture as an archaic way of conferring objective status on moral claims, human worth cannot be measured in terms of being made in God's image or in terms of God's commands, and we are left to resort to other features such as rationality self-awareness, creativity, and so forth, and if these are the new yardsticks of personal worth, then some people just are more valuable than other people. Just where to draw the line might prove pretty tricky. Uh, Flynn notes, the minority sect of Hindus called Jainists brush the path in front of them to avoid stepping on insects, and they wear masks to avoid breathing in microbes. Moving up the ladder, most animal rights advocates do not worry much about insects. They would spray mosquito larvae to, present, uh, sorry, to prevent malaria, but they do draw the line below the higher animals. Most humanists draw the line for possessing thing like, things like rights below the species Homo sapiens. Nietzsche chooses to draw the line for moral concern below supermen, according ordinary people only the derivative consideration humanists accord animals. Nietzsche, says Flynn, is the opponent who has given those of us with humane ideals our worst nightmares. Flynn's case for humane ideals consists of persuading people that they really do want to be humane after all, and this is what they would do if they were consistent. He says, if a man has no rational or evidential method, if he has no method to tell him what he should believe, he has no choice but to ask himself what he really does believe. That is, lacking an epistemological method, he must fall back on a psychological method. When, fr when torn from within by humane ideals and a punitive ethic, he is left asking himself questions like, which set of ideals stirs me most? Or, given two men, one who lives by ideals A and one who lives by ideals B, which do I admire the most? Or, which ideals am I most willing to pattern my life by? Or, which do I wish to hand on to my children? Now, Flynn's critique might do nothing at all to dissuade racists who hate a particular ethnic group because of a trait that they really do have such as a particular religious faith, or less physical strength, or intellectual prowess. And this is what leads us in the direction of Nietzsche. Forget race and religion. This psychological method cannot 
deliver us from a prejudice against people who simply are not as worthwhile as us, according to standards that appear pretty decent. Intellect, strength, creativity, beauty, and so forth. For Nietzsche, the relevant parameter for determining personal worth is not something trivial like color or height, but merit. The anti-realist approach of Flynn and others leaves egalitarianism vulnerable because it could, in principle, only have appealed to those who find themselves inclined to embrace it, embrace it already. Now, could modern democratic liberalism of the sort that I am talking about really take this anti-realist approach to equality? I do not think so. Hans Kelsen is correct in saying that there is only objective value or value with respect to truth in valuing equality if these claims really are true and if this equality is just where i personally stand attitude is the one that we adopt then there is nothing to bridge the gap between liberal democracy and its opponents nothing to persuade people who do not currently accept things like liberty and equality to actually do so at best if liberals approached, uh, adopted Flynn's approach and they applied it to the issue of equality, liberalism might be able to tell us how to live as though equality were true or how to treat people equally, as, you know, as though they were equal. But if those things do not reflect truth, then egalitarian liberalism just becomes not a theory of what really is best, but just a battle cry. Let the bigots be bigots. We have nothing to say that could persuade them. We are weak and powerless when it comes to them. And in principle, we surrender the claim to have any argument to undermine them. But as for us, egalitarians unite. Liberals can't live with this. Not at least if they are to have any intellectual backbone. Jean Hampton's counterclaim to the above is entirely plausible. When she argues that, simply put, Political philosophy that presupposes something like equality need not and probably should not operate in a metaphysical void. That is, it says nothing about the, the real state of affairs when it comes to objects and values and facts. She says, Given that modern constitutional democracies are still not societies in which there is widespread agreement that all people should be accorded the same rights and opportunities, we have an obligation as philosophers committed to arguing with and thus respecting our fellow human beings to persuade opponents of that idea and thus to change their minds. Arguing that they ought to do so because such respect promotes stability is one kind of Socratic argument. It is an argument that is supposed to assert a true causal connection. But even better in the eyes of those who have been denied such respect, is an argument maintaining that disrespectful ideas and practices ought to be rejected because they are wrong. That's a long way of saying that the best way of condemning inegalitarianism is by arguing that inegalitarianism is actually wrong. And with that I completely agree. So where are we so far? Well, I've described in very rough terms what equality is. It's not the idea that we should seek the same outcomes for everyone. Rather, it's the notion that there is something inherently of equal worth about all of us, regardless of what the law says. Secondly, I've said that you can't escape this. 
just by making equality a battle cry or an expression of desire or will, not at least if you want to present a doctrine of equality that has any real persuasive value or which can sustain a morally good society. Well, if you can't escape it that way, how else might you escape it? Well, you could escape it by saying, well, I'm a liberal democratic person, but I just deny basic equality. That's the second way of avoiding this awkwardness. Just deny the doctrine altogether and say that this poses no problem for political liberalism. I won't say much about this solution. I think it's fair to say the problem with it is that the ideal of a modern liberal democracy really does presuppose a doctrine of basic equality and pretty much everyone who writes on the subject sees that. One person, one vote, the impartiality of the justice system and probably a host of other essential features of a liberal democracy would simply crumble if there is no fact-based reason to engage in them or to uphold them. Liberalism needs the doctrine of basic equality. So where do we turn next? Well, I will next turn to the way that liberalism has historically bolstered the doctrine of basic equality. How have liberals historically described and defended equality? And when I do that, it will reveal just how religious that defense has been. So I'll be back in just a minute to do that. The Philosophy Podcast. Quality audio renditions of the philosophical works of Plato, Descartes, Nietzsche, and more. Find it at the iTunes Store or visit learnoutloud.com and click on Podcasts. Yes, I know that was my voice in that advertisement. I wanted to put an ad for them on my podcast because I thought that looks like a pretty good podcast, but they didn't have one, so I offered to make one for them, and there it is. And so now anyone who goes to their site and wants a promo to play, they're going to be playing my one. Isn't that nice? Okay, so where were we? I was about to discuss the historic liberal defenses of the doctrine of equality. Now, in historical or classical liberalism, as it's often called, a general kind of answer was readily available as to the basis of viewing human beings as fundamentally equal, regardless of their differences in intellect, talent, uh, attractiveness, and so forth. Jeremy Waldron uh, recalls listening to the Carlyle Lectures in Oxford back in 1982, presented by Alistair MacIntyre, and he was struck by MacIntyre's claim that, as he read the two treatises of government, the arguments of John Locke concerning basic equality and individual rights were so imbued with religious content that they were not fit constitutionally to be taught in the public schools of the United States of America. Now that's startling. I don't accept, by the way, uh, that since the basis of equality is religious and Locke's argument it's unconstitutional. I don't buy that at all. But notice that for those liberals who do insist on prohibitionism, and on a prohibitionist rereading, a revising of history such as the American Constitution, classical liberal understandings of equality are simply out of bounds because they are so, well, religious. McIntyre's observations about the religious basis of equality in John Locke are very easy to support. Just read him. Parts of Locke's argument are uh, admittedly 
reactionary in nature, refuting the biblical arguments of Robert Filmer against equality, especially equality of the sexes. For example, when Filmer appealed to the book of Genesis and argued that, well, since Adam was created first, he is superior, Locke replied that this would actually prove too much, because in the Genesis record, the lion was created before the man, and if priority always establishes uh, the right to dominion, then the argument, quote, will make the lion have as good a title to it as he, that is, to Adam, and certainly the ancienter, that is, the ancienter title to dominion. But at times when responding to biblical arguments against equality, Locke makes it plain that he is offering his own biblical arguments for basic equality. For example, Filmer makes the argument that since Adam was created before Eve, and he was commanded to have dominion over the earth, it follows that he should have dominion likewise over his wife Eve, just as he does over the animals. Locke replied by showing that, in fact, biblically the bestowal of dominion is something shared by men and women. In doing so, he also dispels any careless reading of man or men as a gender-exclusive term, as some modern feminist readers of the Bible do. They don't like the word man. Um, his reply to Filmer just makes no sense unless the word man includes all humanity. He says, But perhaps it will be said, Eve was not made till afterward. Grant it so. What advantage will our author get by it? The text will be only the more directly against him and show that God, in this donation, gave the world to mankind in common and not to Adam in particular. The word them in the text must include the species of man, for it is certain for it is certain them can by no means signify Adam alone. In the twenty sixth verse, where God declares his intention to give this dominion, it is plain that he meant that he would make a species of creatures that should have dominion over the other species of this terrestrial globe. The words are, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, etc. They then were to have dominion, who? Even those who were to have the image of God, the individuals of that species of man that he was going to make. For that them should signify Adam singly, of the rest that should be in the world with him, is against both scripture and all reason. And it cannot possibly be made sense, if man in the former part of the verse do not signify the same with them in the latter. Only man is there, as is usual, as is taken for the species, and them, the individuals of that species, and we leave a reason in the very text. Sorry, we have a reason in the very text. God makes him in his own image, after his own likeness, makes him an intellectual creature and so capable of dominion. For wherein soever else the, Im the image of God consisted, the intellectual nature was certainly part of it, and belonged to the whole species, and enabled them to have dominion over the inferior creatures. And therefore, David says in the 8th Psalm above cited, that is, he quoted it earlier in this book, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and thou hast made him to have dominion. It is not of Adam, King David speaks here. For verse 4, 
it is plain it is of man and the son of man of the species of mankind End quote. a lengthy quote but it was necessary to flesh out his point filmer had claimed that since fathers give life to their children they are worthy of more honor and have a monarchical role you notice i have a cold it's winter here so i have a blocked nose so please excuse me on that account but Locke's reply is so obvious that it is almost comical that Filmer did not anticipate it. Locke said, This would give the father but a joint dominion with the mother over them, for nobody can deny but that the woman hath an equal share, if not the greater, as nourishing the child a long time in her own body, out of her own substance. There it is fashioned, and from her it receives the materials and principles of its constitution and it is so hard to imagine that the rational soul should presently inhabit the yet unformed embryo as soon as the father has done his part of the act of generation that it must be supposed to derive anything from the parents sorry if it must it must certainly owe most to the mother what he's suggesting is that the soul is not endowed until after uh, the beginning of development in the mother's womb that's his point of view but the main point is, the mother provides not only virtually all of the child's body, but the mind. Filmer's argument would backfire if it were a good one, but as it turns out, says Locke, arguments about humans gaining a right to dominion because of what they contribute in the procreative process is absurd and arrogant. Quoting from the New Testament in Acts 17.28, Locke replies by pointing to a positive argument for equality. He says... They who say that the father gives life to children are so dazzled with the thoughts of monarchy that they do not, as they ought, remember God, who is the author and giver of life. It is in him alone that we live and move and have our being. Throughout Locke's writing, humanity has a specific special status in creation because of the decree and the will of God. Humanity is made in God's image, and has a place of dominion over the earth as a result. He frequently cites biblical passages as grounds for his claims about human status. That he declares men equal according to the law of nature does not get the liberal off the hook here, or anyone who wants to strip away the theology and Locke, and still find a basic theory of equality. According to Locke, nature itself is not theologically neutral. And the law of nature is a way of referring to God's will manifest in nature, as will be revealed easily by a survey of Locke's writing on what the law of nature is. Now, after recalling this uh, speech by McIntyre, this lecture rather, Waldron also recalls, quote, But I also remember in 1982, balking at this characterization of McIntyre's, fancying myself as an expert on the second treatise, and arguing, in a paper that I still have, but had the good sense not to try to publish, that the theology could be bracketed out, bracketed out of Locke's theory, and that, if it were, a defensible secular conception of equality would remain. He didn't do that. He didn't have it published, because he realized that he was wrong. Locke did not hold to anything like a view that there are secular or non-sectarian theory-laden arguments for equality. And in addition, there are religious reasons as well. No, 
all of his reasons for equality were religious reasons. That is to say, what Locke is saying when he says that we are equal just would not be there at all were it not for his religious doctrine. Nobody is likely to do any better than Jeremy Waldron has done in demonstrating this in an entire volume, and I cannot presume to offer an in-depth demonstration here in what is really only a mention in passing. I think that in light of Waldron's work, he is not alone, by the way, as illustrated by McIntyre's work and more recent works, this fact about Locke's arguments for equality can be taken as settled. Waldron's work, by the way, is called God, Locke, and Equality, and I recommend getting hold of that book. It's, it's a fascinating a historical and philosophical read. On another note, the opening words of the U.S. Declaration of Independence make clear the nature of the basis of human equality that the authors held, and it is explicit from the outset that equality is not the product of a political or a legal process. Far from it. The words are familiar to many people, but I'll read them anyway. When, in the course of human, human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so forth. The basis of human equality, along with the basis of human rights in this piece of writing, is explicitly theological. God bestows equal status and dignity upon human beings. Uh, similarly, in his inaugural speech, John F. Kennedy reminded Americans of this basis again, in words that are almost as famous. He said, For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now. For man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human polity, poverty sorry, and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Martin Nussbaum goes so far as to renounce the American Declaration of Independence altogether. She rejects it, saying that it's, it's not appropriate for a liberal democracy, uh, because not only does it make reference to a creator, but because it also declares people equal. Because this uh, belief in equality itself constitutes a reference to theology, she says. This would not be declared in a genuine liberal constitution that all reasonable and rational citizens could endorse, she says, nor can it say, even without reference to God, that all human beings are really metaphysically equal or created equal. It must simply say they are equal as citizens and have equal entitlements within the political conception. That is, they are equal players in the political game because those are the rules of the game that we invented. And 
If there is anything deeper to it than that, the players in the game know nothing about it. If the rules had been different, though, people might not be equal in any sense at all, and there's nothing false or inherently unjust about that, because justice, she says, is just a set of rules, and we make them. What is left untouched, of course, is why we have any more obligation to create rules that regard people as equal as any other rules, and we are plunged back into the problem of justifying anything like an original position on the supposition that we should all count equally in such a decision-making process. What is said, and what matters here, is that traditional liberal views of equality are not suited to new secular liberalism. The problem is that the new liberalism operates as though this understanding of equality is indispensable to it. How do they get away with this? Now, needless to say, there are some modern secular liberal democratic thinkers who aren't very happy with this suggestion. Um, you know, they aren't happy with the idea that the liberal, liberal democratic values that they cherish are just out of bounds to them unless they accept certain religious premises. And so this idea that I'm advancing has been subjected to criticism. Sidney Hook, for example, claimed that if you believe that the fundamental doctrines of democracy require a theological basis, then that's a pretty precarious position, putting important doctrines like equality at great risk. He says, and I quote, Before examining this claim, let us note the tremendous risk it involves. Were those who advanced it ever compelled to admit that their these theological propositions are indemonstrable or false, they would have to surrender their belief in democracy. In other words, if a democratic egalitarian really does, sorry, a democratic egalitarian ideal really depends on theological facts, then look out. For if those theological facts are not facts at all, then we lose democracy. <gasps> but who is this a problem for exactly? Is it a problem for the advocates of my position or for secular liberals? That the risk is so great is the very reason that theists like me make this challenge in the first place and think that it's such a powerful one to their secular liberal counterparts. To point out that a denial of the theological and metaphysical grounding that I'm talking about results in something so unthinkable to many of us as the rejection of equality, for example, this is supposed to actually serve either as evidence for these theological claims or as a reason to give up secular liberalism something the secular liberal does not want to do the argument hook is attacking goes like this if these theological considerations are false then egalitarianism is mistaken but surely egalitarianism is not mistaken right Therefore, these theological considerations are not false. They are true. That's the point. Now, another way to reject this claim of mine, another way to oppose the claim that religious views can and must inform those who hold them, even after they place themselves in the original position, that's a mental device I discussed in episode 3, since they are, that is, these religious beliefs are the basis of essential liberal doctrines like equality, well is to simply brush them off as unpopular, unfashionable, or out of step with contemporary liberalism. Now, this is an unwise decision. It may well be uh, seen to amount to the admission that there just is no counter to my claim, 
But unfortunately, there are always scholars who are willing to engage in this kind of snobbery. One of them is William Dombrowski, who makes much of the claim that the publicity requirement and the priority of right to the good have, from the 17th century to the present, historically conditioned comprehensive religious doctrines. Now, philosophers sometimes, especially political philosophers, are hopelessly unclear at what they mean. In context, what he means is, secular conceptions of justice have trumped religious claims in public life since the 17th century. That's what he's saying. He notes, however, that there are arguments for bringing at least some religious beliefs into the original position, into our political reasoning. He notes, for example, that Garnell has pointed out that some religious beliefs just entail that there is no freestanding conception of justice that doesn't draw on a comprehensive religious doctrine or something relevantly like one. He says, Every religious adherent necessarily asserts that the valid comprehensive understanding of human authenticity is prior to, because it identifies or justifies, permissible moral conceptions as such. Now what did I say about political philosophers being terribly unclear? There's a much easier way to say this. <clears throat> the argument is this. Religious people think that the proper understanding of what human persons are and why they have importance is ultimately a religious question. And so we must, according to them, bring certain religious beliefs into the political process. That's what Garnell is saying. But the way that Dombrowski responds is kind of depressing for anyone who is looking for real interaction. He says, Here one wonders if we are not being asked to return to a view that is pre-liberal, the view that comprehensive religious doctrines is the basis on which a conception of justice <coughs> sorry, got a cold, can be defended. Okay, so the first reason offered for rejecting this argument is that, well, it's an old argument. It doesn't reflect the way modern non-religious liberals think. That's true, it doesn't. So what? If that is the way to settle the debate, then Dombrowski only really needed to explain at the start of his book, I am presenting the latest view, and therefore it is the best view. Dombrowski adds to this by noting that a liberal is the one who knows that he or she is not God, as though he is seriously making the ridiculous suggestion that anyone who would raise Garnell's argument thinks that he is God. This kind of stupid glibness cannot seriously suffice, and it's symptomatic, unfortunately, of a common prejudiced unwillingness to take openly religious argument seriously. So I'll make some sorry, concluding remarks now. I have a cold. <laughs> I am an egalitarian. I really think that we are, in some basic sense, equal. But when the secular liberal says to me that I must keep my religious considerations out of my political reasoning, he is being selective. For secular liberalism itself scrambles to come up with an understandable and defensible doctrine of basic equality. And yet, basic equality is foundational to democratic liberalism. I have no problem with some kinds of democratic liberalism, but the type of democratic liberalism that takes this approach to religious beliefs wants to, as it were, eat the fruit and cut down the tree. It wants to enjoy the philosophical consequences of a religious outlook when it finds those consequences useful, consequences like basic equality, 
but then it becomes self-defeating by insisting that it wants no part of outdated religious points of view. So there is the heart of what I have had to say today. So what do you think about all this? Do you have anything to say about it? Do you have any questions, disagreements, objections? Let me know. Drop me a line here at the BerettaCast. That's podcast at beretta-online.com. Now I fear that I'm beginning to make a habit of having sessions that are rather longer than I planned, but this means that today, in order to keep things below a reasonable time frame, there is no history section, nor is there a podcast roundup. I will try to do better next time for you. I look forward to speaking to you again then. Not quite sure at this stage what I'll be talking about. Possibly the moral argument for theism. That's something that's going to be coming up quite soon. In fact, why don't I just make the decision right now? Next time I'm going to start talking about the moral argument in philosophy of religion for the existence of God. So if you find that interesting, please check back. But for now, it's time to say farewell from someone with a cold at... Say hello to my little friend!